Father, we come now to your word and we ask that you would speak to us through it today. Father, use it to transform our minds and our hearts. Lord, will you use it to conform our will to yours and not your will to ours. Father, we submit ourselves to the authority of your word. We come to it knowing that it is perfect, that it is right, that it is true, that it is sufficient to point us to your son, Jesus, to show us his perfection, to guide us, to direct us, to light our path in the midst of a dark world. And so as we open these words today, Lord, will you speak to us, help us to hear, help us to know, help us to believe. Father, don't let us be like those who hear without hearing and who see without seeing. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Make us more today like your son, Jesus. So Father, will you use your word now to edify your church, glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. And we ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5 uh, is where we'll be again together today. If you're our guest, if you've not been with us before, uh, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And um, what we are doing for the rest of this year as a church is we are studying the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And so this summer, uh, we are focusing on the Beatitudes, spending one week on each one of the Beatitudes. So today we'll be in Matthew 5, verse 7, picking up uh, where we left off last week in verse 6. But before uh, we dive right into things this morning, I want to make sure we acknowledge some guests in the room. Um, July for us as a church family is summer family worship. We take the month of July to have our elementary age cross kids with us um, in the room. So all of our cross kids in the room this morning, would you guys throw up a hand real quick? Let us know that you're here. First through fifth graders, can we celebrate these guys being with us in the room? today and through the month of July. Um, we we uh, try to take this opportunity every single year to, to give our uh, cross kids, elementary volunteers in particular, uh, a little bit of a breather. And every one of them, I think I just heard say amen. And so I'm grateful for you guys, grateful for the way that we serve, excited to have our kids with us here for family worship um, through the summer. But um, we've got a lot we're going to try to cover in a short amount of time today. Um, so we're going to jump right into Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we've seen together over the last few weeks, each of the Beatitudes builds on the others. The Beatitudes are not independent statements, they are interdependent statements. So as we walk through the Beatitudes, we have to recognize Jesus isn't describing several different groups of people. He is describing one person and the whole of the Christian experience. So if we were to ask the question then, who are the merciful? Um, we've seen over the course of the last few weeks how we answer this question. The easiest answer to that question is that the merciful are the same people we've been talking about for the last few weeks. The merciful are the same group of people that we have talked about from verses 3 through 6. So uh, you could answer it like this. You could say that the merciful from verse 7 are those who, verse 3, are poor in spirit. It's those who are morally and spiritually bankrupt, and they know it. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. The merciful are those who mourn. 
They see sin and the effects of sin in their lives, in the church, in the world. This leads them to grieve and to mourn over sin. Jesus promises that those who mourn will be comforted. The merciful, Alex showed us just a couple of weeks ago, are the meek. They are those who, with great humility, refuse to assert their dominance in this world and press their agendas forward in their own strength because they know that they will reign as co-heirs with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. The merciful we saw last week in the blazing hot sun at Corson Tate Park are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What a day to preach a message about being hungry and thirsty. It's 100 degrees outside, we're in the sun, and Craig Reeves was smoking some of the best food you'll ever eat in your life. And, and we saw that because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are poor in spirit, they ache and they long for the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus promises, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied. So that's who the merciful are. Just right off the, out of the gate this morning. The merciful are those who are poor in spirit. The merciful are those who mourn. They are those who are meek. They are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are not different groups of people. It's the same person. And what Matthew 5, 7 shows us as we continue to build this out together this morning is that the gospel declares God's mercy towards sinners and as his mercy is declared to us, and as we receive this mercy that's been poured out freely to us through Jesus Christ, it also empowers us to display his mercy to others. You know, it's so easy for us to receive God's mercy for ourselves and then in turn withhold it from others. But friends, we have to understand this morning, if our understanding of mercy is that it's something we do deserve and something that others don't deserve, we have yet to understand the mercy of God. Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. So two simple truths that we're going to draw this passage, two phases of this verse that we see. So first half of verse 7, we see a picture of the mercy we extend to others. Verse 7, beginning of verse 7 shows us the mercy we extend to others. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy is a word that is often closely associated with grace, but we need to understand that these two words aren't exactly the same. Grace is giving something to someone that they don't deserve. Mercy is about showing compassion to those who are in utter misery. If you look at the religious landscape during the time of Jesus, it was a religious culture that focused almost exclusively on external behavior. If you study the Gospels, what we quickly see about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders during the time of Jesus, they were experts at looking the part. They were experts at looking righteous, appearing righteous. They were experts at looking merciful and appearing merciful, but, but time and time again, Jesus condemned them because internally their hearts were wicked and far from him. So if Jesus says here in verse seven, blessed are the merciful, you could just as easily say the opposite based on some of other, Jesus's other teachings and essentially say, cursed are the merciless. Jesus promises blessing for those who show mercy and Jesus warns judgment against those who withhold it. A good example of this comes from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. We've alluded to this parable a couple of different times in this series already, but I just want to go ahead and read it for us from Luke 18. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So, mistake number one with this group is that they are not poor in spirit. They are the opposite of the type of person that Jesus said the kingdom belonged to. 
They trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt, so they weren't meek. They weren't poor in spirit, they they weren't meek, and they certainly didn't demonstrate mercy. And here's the parable. Jesus says in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Listen to this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Lord, thank you so much that I am not like those people. Thank you that I'm different. Thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And then he just calls this guy out, or even like this tax collector. Points him out as he prays. And what's he do? He starts to rattle off his religious resume, right? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. How's the tax collector respond? It says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here in in this one single passage, we get a clear picture of both a misunderstanding of mercy and a true understanding of mercy. Those who are merciful do not mock people in their misery. Those who are merciful meet people in their misery. That's what mercy is. Mercy is active compassion for sufferers. But just to make sure we're on the same page, we're going to spend the next several minutes here looking at a number of pictures of what mercy is not. Because we've allowed, I think culturally and even within the church to an extent, uh, there to be a convoluted understanding of what mercy is and how it is mercy is supposed to be expressed. So just to make sure we're on the same page, let's look at five things that mercy is not. First, mercy is not empty sentimentality. Mercy is not empty sentimentality. If there is a form of false religion that is harsh and condemning and heavy-handed like the Pharisee in Luke 18, the opposite but equally dangerous version is a Christianity that's watered down that avoids saying anything that makes anyone feel uncomfortable. Empty sentimentality is the faulty overcorrection to heavy-handed fundamentalism. You know, in an interview with uh, CBS Sunday Morning a few years ago, uh, Joel Osteen, who leads one of the largest religious organizations in America, uh, I use that word loosely, um, massive platform, sells lots of books, very, very popular. He, he gives an example of this. In this interview, he said, most people are beaten down enough by life. They already feel guilty enough. They're not doing what they should, raising their kids. We can find all the reasons. So I, I want them to come to Lakewood or our meetings and be lifted up to say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better, and I think that motivates you to do better. So in, in his estimation, and Robert Schuler before him and many who have followed in this same thread after them, because people already feel guilty, the solution in their mind is we avoid much talk of sin. We avoid much talk of repentance. We avoid much talk of judgment. We avoid much talk of hell. But by avoiding these topics, he doesn't realize he is leading people astray by forsaking the truth that can finally bring them comfort. Let's go back to week one. What what is the key verse to understanding the Sermon on the Mount? We gotta go back to Matthew 4.17. And what is it the foundation of everything Jesus preaches from Matthew 4.17? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
This is the message that was preached by the prophets. This is the message that was preached by John the Baptist, preparing the way for Jesus. This is the message that was preached by Jesus. This is the message that Jesus has given to the church to preach until the day that we see him face to face. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So understand, anyone who would say, God has not called me to preach a message of repentance, friends, has not been called by God to preach. Mercy is not empty sentimentality, and we will never understand the message of God's mercy if we try to divorce it from the gospel of repentance. It's impossible to understand mercy if we reduce it to empty sentiment. Second, we need to see that mercy is not relational weakness. You know, the the Roman culture during the time of Christ, they saw mercy as ultimate weakness. Rome did not become Rome because they showed mercy to their enemies, right? They asserted their dominance. They would use the the strongest fear tactics that they possibly could. They they would uh, torture people. They would would crucify people, so many people at times that the communities they were in would run out of wood. I mean, this this is how Rome got things done. They they didn't just conquer their enemies. I mean, they, they completely and totally and utterly subdued them. They stamped them out if there was even the threat of destruction. The Roman way was not merciful, but merciless. You know, if you look even parallels to Roman culture to today, as as children were born into Roman culture, oftentimes what would happen is the head of the household, as the child was being born, he would give either thumbs up or thumbs down if it got to live. And and part of the ministry of the early church back in the first century, much of what set them apart from the pagan Roman culture was the compassion and the mercy that they showed to these children who were discarded. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. This is the type of work that set Christians apart from the rest of the world. And unfortunately, I think much of that same attitude continues to dominate our thinking today. Listen, we may no longer crucify people publicly with hammers and nails, but now we like to do it privately and publicly with words and screens. Goodness, we love to be merciless towards people because that's how you win, right? Assert your dominance. Crucify your opponents. Expose them humiliate them, publicly shame them, crush your opponents, say it louder for all of those people that I'm so glad that I'm not like. Who does that sound like from Luke 18? So much of this pervades our thinking and our approach today. We are afraid to show mercy because we're afraid to look weak. And the desperate need of our day are Christians who are strong enough to show mercy. Third, we need to see that mercy is not the affirmation of sin. Being merciful is not being affirming of sin. The placement of this beatitude is really important. This is why we got to keep the beatitudes in context as we teach them every single week. Because it goes hand in hand with the beatitude about righteousness. Again, go, go back to where we were just a week ago. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, a lot of times righteousness gets a bad rap because when we hear righteousness, we think self-righteousness. You know, we hear holiness and we think holier than thouness, you know, because of negative experiences that we've had. But, but Jesus still absolutely calls us to uphold a standard of righteousness. And right on the heels of the verse about righteousness is now a verse about mercy. And I think that context is important to us because so many debates that are raging in the culture and in the church today, in many ways, they are arguments, uh, particularly among Christians, about righteousness versus mercy. Now, I'm going to speak in some pretty vague generalities here, so I'm asking for a little bit of grace, but this is what tends to be generally true. So if you're a follower of Christ who tends to lean a little bit more conservative, both politically and theologically, we tend to be vocal champions for righteousness. 
What is right according to God's word? And then if you tend to lean a little bit more progressive, both theologically and politically, we tend to be vocal champions of mercy. We wanna show mercy, we wanna show grace, we wanna show kindness. And, and I think just a lot of things can inform whether you're, you're bent one way or the other. Some of it's personality, some of it is upbringing, some of it's what comes naturally to us. But the error that we sometimes make is that we try to pit righteousness against mercy. But friends, these two are not in competition with one another. Righteousness and mercy are not an either or. Righteousness and mercy are a both and. And because we try to pit them with one another, it leads to conflict and division within the body of Christ. I want to give us a couple of examples. Again, look recently, again, at the debate over abortion. Why do we as followers of Christ refuse to affirm the right to extinguish life that has been made in the image of God from the womb? Why do we refuse to affirm this? Because of righteousness. And at the exact same time, why must we welcome and love and serve the mother who has either had an abortion or contemplating one? Because of mercy. Why is it, just to give another example here, why is it that we as followers of Christ, that we refuse to affirm a sexual relationship between two men, a sexual relationship between two women? Why is it that we refuse to affirm that this cultural lie, that gender is just a social construct that you can kind of change on a whim? Why do we refuse to affirm these things? Because of righteousness. And yet why do we continue to love and to serve and to engage our neighbor, our friend, maybe even the follower of Christ who's, who's struggling, who's wrestling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, why do we continue to love and serve church? Because of mercy. And the desperate need of our day is going to be Christians who can hold tightly to righteousness and who can hold tightly to mercy. I, I would go as far as to say your faith in this generation, it is either going to rise or fall on whether or not you can be a both and Christian in an either or world. The world you are living in is trying to convince you to believe that it's unloving to hold on to righteousness. And even the religious culture to an extent will, will crucify you because of how merciful you can be. And we have to remember, listen, if this is how it was for Jesus, this is how it's going to be for us. We'll skip ahead just a few verses to the end of the Beatitudes in verses 10 through 12. Church, Jesus did not promise, blessed are the popular. He said, blessed are you when you are persecuted. Persecution, not popularity, is what was promised to followers of Christ. That is to be the normative Christian experience according to Jesus. And here's what you will experience. Here's what you will experience. If you choose to hold tightly to righteousness, the rebellious world is going to hate you. And if you choose to hold tightly to mercy, even the religious world is going to hate you. Jesus has promised this is what we're going to experience. If you're going to walk in the Jesus way, you will draw the ire of the world. And then this is what's been entrusted to us, is when the world hates us for what we believe, we love them anyway. And we continue to demonstrate and prove the mercy that God has shown to us. A rebellious world will hate you because of righteousness. The religious world will hate you because of mercy. We have to understand that never once in the gospel does Jesus ever affirm a person's sin, but Jesus is more than willing to stand with sinners. That's the call to the church today. Mercy is also not pity without action. Uh, we're gonna come back to this at the very end. So very quickly here, mercy is not simply the feeling of compassion. 
Mercy is compassion in action. So again, just what we're going through right now culturally, mercy is not looking out at mothers and children in need and saying, that's terrible, someone should do something about it. Mercy is saying, I'm someone. I should do something about it. It's, it's using our resources. It's using our money, our homes, our very lives. And, and we aren't just pitied by it. It doesn't just hurt us in our heart. No, we're actually stirred and we're moved to action to serve those who are in the greatest need. Mercy is not seeing someone lamenting over their sin and just saying, oh, poor guy, someone should stand with him. Mercy says, I'm someone. I will go stand with him. No matter their sin, no matter the embarrassment, no matter the shame, no matter what others think of us because we're standing with them. It's like Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. She's on the verge of being stoned by the Pharisees. Just like Jesus, we are called to stand in the gap, draw the line in the sand to rescue the perishing and care for the dying. Mercy is not pity without action. Last, we need to see that mercy is not performative religion. Mercy is not performative religion. We're gonna see this more in a couple of weeks, so I don't wanna get too far ahead here, but I don't think this can be said enough in our social media crazed generation. Uh, We will see as we get into chapter six that Jesus absolutely despises when our acts of mercy are nothing more than performance before a crowd. This is the type of religion that Jesus despises when we do things simply to be seen by others. Jesus oftentimes called the religious leaders hypocrites, and it's the word that we also get our word for actor. They were pretending. They were good at at appearing to care. Again, the Pharisees didn't neglect the poor. They actually gave very generously. But when they did it, the problem with the Pharisees is that they made sure everybody knew about it. As Jesus said, that they would uh, metaphorically sound a trumpet before them. They wanted to make sure everybody saw how much they were giving, how much they were doing. Experts at appearing merciful. So, you know, for me, like I'll be, I'll be 35 here in a few months. And so I'm, I kind of fall into that older millennial generation. And, and I think, you know, when you look at my generation in general, one positive is that we tend to be very action oriented. We're not typically content to see a problem and then not do something about it. Like that's always the question, you know, of, of kind of the under 40 crowd in our church is, hey, what are we actually doing? How can I actually get engaged? How can I actually get involved? Which is a good thing. This, this is a good thing. So again, I don't think the challenge for our generation of the church is going to be getting engaged and taking action. The, the challenge for our generation of the church is going to be, can we take action and do things without having to tell the whole world about it? Like, like we got this obsession with broadcasting every second of our lives on social media. You know, it's, it's man, I'm, I'm just blessed and humbled to have this opportunity to serve all these people. Don't know their names, but it makes for a good Instagram pic. Like we're just so content to post the picture, to get the likes, to get the comments, to get the attention. And we'll see it as we get into Matthew chapter six. Jesus says, listen, if, if you're doing this for the applause of man, enjoy their applause because that's as good as it gets. That's the question for our generation, not can we take action? The question is, can we take action with having to tell, without having to tell everybody about it? Are you content that your heavenly father sees you? Is it good enough for you that Jesus getting glory is your reward? That's going to be the test for a generation. So that's what mercy is not. That, that this is what mercy is not. We need to make sure we understand uh, what this is. So mercy is active compassion. Mercy is sympathy in motion out of genuine concern for the physical and spiritual sufferer. I love this from D.A. Carson. He says, mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one whom the love is to be showered. 
if grace answers to the undeserving, mercy answers to the miserable. Sinclair Ferguson, very similar, he says, mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin. That's what it means to be merciful. I saw just a a powerful example of this in in action about 16 years ago. Uh, My sophomore year of college, um, I traveled to Southeast Asia for a few weeks as part of a disaster relief trip. If you, many of you remember uh, 16, 17 years ago, the, um, the, the Indian Ocean tsunami, it's widely considered to be the, the deadliest tsunami in human history. And so uh, I went to Sri Lanka with a disaster relief group. And um, our task while we were there was that we were going to be digging wells and septic tanks. Um, as uh, the tsunami came ashore, it polluted all of the clean water and it caused all the septic tanks to overflow. So um, as new homes were being built, equipment was uh, very scarce. And so it was hand digging of uh, wells that are about 15 feet down and septic tanks that are about eight to 10 feet underground. And as we came into a village where we we're going to be doing some work, one of the first people we met uh, was a guy named George. And um, George had this small Gideon Bible. And before we started doing our work, he encouraged us, I think, with a verse from Philippians and one maybe from Psalms. And, and as we're standing there, we said, hey, George, will you tell us your story? You know, how did you come to faith in Jesus? Um, and he, he just goes on to tell that this incredible story, how When the tsunami hit, his home was completely destroyed. Um, He lost several family members and uh, was not able to to get or access his his home for a period of a couple months. And by the time he finally got back to his house, um, the the devastation was was just terrible. Um, Because of the overflowing septic tank, um, his entire home, the floor of his entire home, um, was about six to eight inches of human waste. I mean, just, just cake together, had been baking in the sun, just a terrible, miserable experience. And when he showed up to his house after not having been there for a couple of months, he, he found this guy from one of the disaster relief teams. He was head to toe in a, in a Tyvek suit and rubber gloves and boots and mask and everything. And he is down literally on his knees, scooping human waste into a bucket. And when George saw it happening, I mean, it just, it just humiliated him. He, he was embarrassed. He was ashamed. He was like, this is my home. You, you can't come in here. This is beneath you. Why would you do this? And he begged this guy to stop. 15, 20 minutes, he, he begged him to stop. Finally, in tears, he just looks at him. He says, why are you doing this for me? And the man stood up and looked at him and said, because this is what Jesus Christ has done for me. He was moved by mercy. I mean, is that not the message of the gospel? that Jesus saw us in our filth. He saw us in our sin. He saw us in our guilt. He saw us in our shame. He saw us in our rebellion. He saw us in our wickedness. And we looked at this briefly last week. What does 2 Corinthians 5 say? It says that he became our sin. He took that filth upon himself. Why? So that we could become his righteousness. That's mercy. Our heavenly father did not see us in our moment of greatest need and resign us to that sinful condition. He sent us Jesus. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And that's the mercy that we're called to show to others. So that's the first half of the verse. Blessed are the merciful. That's the mercy that we're called to extend to others. The second picture we see is that mercy that God extends to us. So we, we've seen that the merciful type of person we're called to be, and, and we do all of this because in light of the mercy that God has extended to us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, uh, we have to be really careful with this verse because um, some try to interpret Matthew 5, through se- Matthew 5 7 legalistically. 
A lot of times we read this, and, and folks will take this to mean, if I show mercy to others, then God will show mercy to me. That becomes then performative religion. That's if I do all of these acts of goodness, if I do all of these works, all these acts of mercy, what I'm doing is I'm putting God in my debt, and then he's obligated to show mercy to me. And, and that's not Christianity. That's paganism, trying to work for God's mercy. No, no, being a follower of Christ means you have already received his mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. To be blessed by God means that we have been received by him. We have been approved. We do belong to him. His mercy has already been poured out to us. So the reason Jesus says, blessed are the merciful is because we have already received his blessing and approval and experienced that mercy in our lives. So blessed are, we have been shown mercy. That's past and present. And then second half, they shall receive mercy. This is future. Past, present, and future, those who are in Christ have been shown mercy. We will show mercy to others, and we will be shown mercy in the future glory that is to come. Friends, the Christian life is mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. This is who God is. Psalm 103.8 tells us the Lord is merciful and gracious. This is who he is. This is his default posture. This is his heart. This is his character. This is his nature. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. One of the greatest promises in all the Bible, Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. How often does it cease? Never. His mercies never, everybody say never. They never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Group participation thing here, show of hands. Who needed mercy when you woke up yesterday morning? Who needed mercy when you woke up today? Who already needs mercy tomorrow for things that you've already done today? Like, let's be honest. Like, how many families almost separated on the way to church this morning, right? It happens to my family, happens to yours too. Like, it, it gets dicey, right, real quick on Sunday morning. No, we, we need mercy every, he, he gives mercy every morning because we need it every single day. He has already provided the mercy for tomorrow that we need because of the things that we're gonna do today and are going to do tomorrow. His mercy is new every single morning. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, Ephesians 2, 4. Ephesians 2 begins by telling us that we were dead in our sins. This is who we were apart from Christ. We were dead in our sins. We were following the course of this world. We were under the influence and the direction of Satan. We, we were on a one-way fixed destination to eternal destruction with our middle finger up to God. That's who we were apart from Christ, whether we know it or not. And I, I think this is the best verse in the whole Bible, Ephesians 2, 4. It tells us, but God... Who is he? Rich in mercy. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive through Jesus Christ. And by grace, we have been saved. This is who our God is. The Lord doesn't just show mercy. He is mercy. He is rich in mercy. Treasure trove of mercy. No supply chain issues on God's mercy. That's good news. Amen. New every morning kind of mercy. Church, how quickly we forget that we were dead in our sins. How quickly we forget that we were enemies and haters of God. How easily we forget that it was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. How readily we cut out the fact that we were on a one-way fixed destination to eternal judgment under his justice and wrath. And then when we least deserved it, when we least deserved it, when we were being dragged to our death, 
a stranger appeared from the crowd and said, I'll take his place. I'll go to her cross. I'll take her sin. She can have my righteousness. This is who our God is. What moved Jesus to the cross? It was mercy. It was his heart of compassion. It was his act of compassion for sinners and for those in need. John Piper said this. He says, mercy comes from mercy. Our mercy to each other comes from God's mercy to us. You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything you are and have to sheer divine mercy. It's hard to believe that it's now been seven years uh, since Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel AME Church just 90 minutes north of us and opened fire on a group of men and women who were simply having a Bible study. He was driven uh, by white supremacist ideology and hatred of them simply because of the color of their skin. It's a devastating story. It's one that, that we, I think, try to at least remember once a year. We, we just passed this, uh, this very sad anniversary just a couple of weeks ago. And, and uh, just reflecting on those events again, I was reading just a, a few older news articles that emerged during this time. And, and this story never ceases to amaze me. Uh, Nadine Collier had lost her mother, Ethel Lance, on that day. And when she appeared at Dylan Roof's bond hearing, she said words to him that nobody expected her to say. She said to the man who had taken the life of her mother, I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. How does someone forgive a person so driven by hate and wickedness? From where do you get the resources to forgive someone who has caused so much devastation in your life? Friends, this is a resource that can be found only in Christ and Christ alone. You can't find this through this world. And so listen, if you hear nothing else this morning, I hope you will at least hear and write down these four words. Forgiven people forgive people. Those who have been shown mercy show mercy. This is one of the clearest evidences that we are truly in Jesus Christ. Like if you're the type of person that really wrestles with, man, am I truly a Christian? Am I really in Christ? I think the verse we looked at last week and the verse we're looking at today are maybe two of the clearest evidences in the whole Bible that you belong to Jesus. Do you hunger and thirst for his righteousness? And do you love to show mercy? This is what forgiven people do. Forgiven people forgive people. Understand, the gospel is the opposite of the cancel culture that dominates our day. Cancel culture demands continual repentance without ever offering the hope of redemption. Cancel culture is permanent crucifixion. It is all shame and no salvation. It is all guilt and no grace. It is all malice and no mercy. Cancel culture is the ultimate anti-gospel and it's the gospel that our world is currently preaching and the gospel that I fear many of us have started to believe. When we preach the gospel of cancel culture, church, we channel the spirit of the antichrist. Forgiven people forgive people. We, We will see this more when we study the Lord's Prayer here in a few weeks. We are never more like Christ than when we are willing to forgive. We are never less like Christ than when we are unwilling to forgive. 
we would all do well to heed the warning of James 2.13 that reminds us that judgment will be without mercy to the one who does not show mercy. How can you tell if you're truly in Christ? Do you run to show mercy? Do you love to show mercy? Because those who have been shown the mercy of Christ are eager themselves to show the mercy of Christ. So how do we do this? How do we actually show mercy? I want to talk very quickly, look at a few scriptures for reflection. Four ways that we can show mercy to others. Four specific ways, four specific spheres where we can show mercy. Uh, We see through scripture that we can show mercy to others physically. Acts of mercy, physical acts that we will do, physical needs that we will rise up to meet, these are acts of mercy. James 2 says it like this. James asks, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, your translation today, hey, I'll pray for you, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? He goes on in the next verse to say, listen, faith without works is dead. Mercy is not pity without action. It's not just the feeling of compassion. It's compassion that runs to act, that is eager to act. It's sympathy in motion. Mercy is not pity without action. Mercy is not the empty virtue signaling of our day that gives the appearance of concern. We are so good at appearing like we care. We're so good at, at, at you know, updating our Facebook status and, and changing our face picture. We are so great at looking like we care. And and making the world around us make sure they know how much we do in fact care about this thing that we'll probably never speak into again. That's not what mercy is. Mercy is compassion in action. It's sympathy in motion. Mercy is active and ongoing concern. So again, why as a church do we have dozens? I mean, I'm looking in this room and I'm seeing people, same with the first service this morning. Why do we have dozens of people engaged in ministries like Young Lives? and Radiance Women's Center, and and why do we have dozens of people engaged at the food pantry out at St. Helena? Because of mercy. Like, why do we pour thousands of dollars into these ministries every single year? Why are we constantly rallying people up to go and meet these needs? Because we have been shown the mercy of God, we should be eager to show that same mercy to others. And and no, while, while filling someone's stomach does not save their soul, we see through scripture that it's through meeting physical needs that we are building bridges to share the greatest need, which is the message of the gospel. I want to ask you this morning, who around you is suffering from a physical need? And how is God calling you today to show them mercy? It's not enough to look and say that sad someone should do something. We are someone. How is God calling you to rise up and act? Second, we can show mercy relationally. Luke 17, Jesus shows us how we should respond when someone falls into sin, but then turns and repents. He shows us what we should do. Luke 17, three, he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. So pause right here. This is righteousness. This is our calling as brothers and sisters in Christ, as uncomfortable as it is. That whenever we see each other drifting, we call each other back to righteousness. We call each other back to the standard of God's word. If your brother sins, rebuke him. But listen, and if he repents, forgive him. If he turns from his sin and repents, forgive him. Jesus says, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is what forgiven people do. Why do we forgive again and again and again and again and again? 
We do it because you and I, friends, have been forgiven again and again and again and again. Who's ever sinned more than seven times in a day? Like Jesus forgive you every single time? Yes. Yes. And in fact, is already anticipating your sin for tomorrow. Like he's, he's got that covered too. He's, he's, he's already good to go on, on, on that front. And, and this is where we draw the resource to forgive others. We have to continually look at the face of Jesus. We have to continually remember the gospel, remember the mercy that God has lavished on us time and time and time and time again. When we did not deserve it, when we promised for the thousandth time we weren't doing it again, we had not even begun to scratch the surface of his mercy. He has no shortage of mercy and he pours it out on us day in and day out again. Listen, this doesn't mean that we allow people to take advantage of us without consequence, but it does mean as followers of Christ, we should always be moving closer and closer and closer to forgiveness. We should always be working towards forgiveness in our relationships with one another. Third way that we can show mercy, an understated way, I think, is, is emotionally. As we see brothers and sisters who are suffering, who are discouraged spiritually, who are down, who are anxious, who are depressed, man, how we can speak encouragement into their lives. Now, I want to take us to a place where we might not immediately be inclined to go when we're talking about mercy and encouragement, but it's one that I think we really need to see. And so what I want to do is point us to Sunday morning by looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Now, this is typically you know, known as the, hey, you need to go to church on Sunday morning verse, right? Like it's like the one verse in the New Testament that's you should assemble together and you shouldn't forsake it. Like you shouldn't get in the habit of not gathering together with the saints. And that, that tends to be kind of the go-to verse to defend what we're doing right now, which is gathering together as the body uh, together on Sunday morning. But what specifically are we to be doing when we gather together? It says in verse 24, we should stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So there it is, as is the habit of some, but what should we be doing when we're together? But encouraging one another, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our ministry to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ is the ministry of encouragement. When we gather together, this should be our chief concern. How might I encourage my brothers and sisters today? By praying for them, by, by singing over them, if they just can't, aren't feeling it in the moment. By encouraging with the word, by encouraging them with a promise, by encouraging them with, with, with my presence. Like, like, do you know any person on this entire planet that's suffering from too much encouragement? No. We looked at this last fall when we studied the book of Titus. As a church, we certainly want to be champions of gospel doctrine. That's the message of repentance. But we also want to be champions of gospel culture. And that flourishes through the ministry of encouragement. We preach the gospel of repentance in an embodied culture of perpetual encouragement. I just want to ask, what would it look like for you to go out of your way, to inconvenience yourself today to encourage somebody else? What would it look like for you to go to a brother or sister who is suffering, who's hurting, who's frustrated and speak into their life and say, I know it's hard. I know it's hard, but by God's grace, you're going to make it. And I'm going to make sure you do because I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. 
What would the ministry of encouragement look like in your life? For you just to come alongside suffering, hurting, defeated brothers and sisters, and just to encourage them and say, keep your eyes on Jesus because he's going to see you through. Fourth way that we can show mercy to each other and to the world is spiritually. So we can show mercy physically, we can do it relationally, emotionally, but ultimately we do this spiritually. There's the most famous verses in all of scripture, Micah 6, 8, many of us could probably quote this. The words of the prophet, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justly, that's righteousness. Love kindness, that's mercy. Walk humbly with your God. That This is what's been laid out to us so far by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you love to show mercy? Again, we are rightly concerned about physical suffering, and indeed God's word commands us to be serious about alleviating physical suffering. But the primary driving force behind meeting physical needs is our spiritual concern. In mercy, we meet the need of a hungry stomach because the desire is that we will see God satisfy the hunger of their souls. It's it's much easier for someone to believe in a God who can satisfy the hunger of their soul when somebody has been willing to satisfy the hunger in their stomach. And so, so we do these physical acts in order to build these spiritual bridges. In mercy, we meet physical needs. And we have to understand as we do this, church, our world is, is lost. Our world is perishing. Our world is dying. For the most part, it doesn't know it. And it hates us when we tell it that it is. Are you concerned for the spiritual brokenness of this world? Do, do you desire for those who are far from Christ to understand understand and to know his mercy. When we run to tell them, many of them are going to hate us. Many of them are going to cast us out. They they may persecute us. We'll see this later in a few verses. If they did this to Jesus, they did it to us. And yet this is our call today. We cling tightly to righteousness. And then when we face the opposition of the world, the hatred of the world, the rejection of the world, what do we do? We love them anyway. We do everything within our power, everything within our strength to love them to Jesus Christ. When the world opposes you, when when the rebellious world opposes you because of righteousness, when the religious world opposes you because of mercy, whenever you do these things, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Remember that as he hung broken and bloodied and naked and dying on that cross, remember as he hung there and was struggling to take a single breath. Remember as the crowd was spitting on him and cursing him and mocking him. Remember the Jesus who in that moment looked out at them and prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgiven people forgive people. Those who have been shown mercy will show mercy. And we do this motivated by the fact that God has already poured out his mercy on us. He's going to continue to do it every single day until the day we see him face to face when we will see and realize the fullness of his mercy. Will you bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning? We're going to prepare our hearts in just a second to come to the table for communion. And in the Lord's table, communion really is for us the ultimate visible picture of mercy, right? I mean, we come to the table and we are reminded that it wasn't our body that was broken. It was Christ's body that was broken for us. 
It wasn't our blood that was shed for sin. It was the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sin. This is mercy. He became our sin and gave us his righteousness. For Jesus, it was not pity without action. He saw us in our worst moments and he gave us the most that he could possibly give when he gave himself. So as we prepare to come to the table this morning, let's not do that lightly. Let's not do that without considering the depth of God's mercy. Let's not do that without forgetting that the the massive magnitude of our sin, what was required for us to be saved, is only made possible by the mercy and the grace of God. So let's invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and search our minds. What, what words, what actions, what attitudes, what behaviors, what motives, what desires, what is in your heart, what's in your mind, what's in your life that is not of Christ? Let's honestly confess our sin before him today. And we do this boldly because we're promised, 1 John 1, 9, when we, we, we confess, he meets us with mercy. We confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just. He'll forgive us, he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we rest in that truth today. Just take a moment before the Lord to to lay our sin before him, to thank him for his mercy, to thank him for the kindness and love that he's lavished on us. We're gonna sing it in just a moment, that reminder that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Such a precious truth that we can cling to today. So Father, thank you for the mercy that you have poured out on us through your son, Jesus. Thank you for your mercy that is new every morning because Father, we need it every single day. We needed it yesterday. We need it today. We will need it tomorrow. Thank you for running to meet us in our moment of greatest need. Thank you that you did not overlook our suffering. You gave us something far greater than what we ever deserved. We thank you, we worship you, and we celebrate that now. So Father, as we reflect on the mercy you have shown to us, Will you give us a heart that loves to show mercy to others? Because that's your heart. And we want your heart today. As we come to this table, you be glorified in our partaking of the bread and the cup. Be glorified in our singing as we continue to confess and repent and worship you. Father, let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you from this place today. Be glorified in the praises of your people. Let it come from a genuine heart. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen.